friends, this is going to be a bit of a different episode than what you've been used to on Pondering Purple. I'll start posting more topical fare again in the near future, but I thought I'd begin this school year, although a little bit late, by sharing with you a talk I gave at a retreat just this past weekend. To be honest, when I found out the topic I'd been assigned, I nearly bowed out. How does a person stand in front of a room full of mostly strangers and speak for 45 minutes on the subject of hearing Jesus in the chaos of our pain? Well, it turns out a person does that by telling her own story of pain and spiritual deafness and eventually of healing. And since I'm an MK and a missionary, I realized that much of what I shared that night might actually be something you, my listeners, can relate to as well. Please note that at three points in the talk, I'll introduce a two-minute pause for remembering and journaling. For this recording, those will be marked by a few seconds of a guitar playing. So if you want to do the exercise, when you hear the guitar, push pause, take the time to process, then press play to continue. And one more thing, there's a link in the show notes that'll take you to a blog post on my website where you'll be able to see a few of the graphics I shared as I talked. They might help to explain a few of the audience responses you hear in the background. And finally, I want to say this. I am always open about my family's dysfunction when I speak to groups like these. And out of respect for my mom, who is the woman I love more than anyone else on this planet, I've repeatedly asked her if she's okay with me putting some of our stuff out there. She has always said an unreserved yes, understanding that one way God redeems our mistakes is to use them for the benefit of others. So... Without further caveats, this is Hearing Jesus in the Chaos of Our Pain. So this is such a complicated topic that I've been blessed with tonight. And as I was thinking about how I wanted to cover it, my first thought was, I think I need to think about what voices sometimes outscream Jesus' voice. When we have trouble hearing him sometimes, I think it's because other voices are louder than his. So what I'm going to do is, is walk through four phases of my life and um, give you some of the instances of what I have experienced and what voices came out of those experiences. And then at the end of every phase, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to use the notepads you have in front of you or your phone or whatever it is and consider what voices from that phase of your life you might be able to go back and hear again and what the messaging of those voices might have been. And then at the end, I'm gonna go into what I actually learned about hearing Jesus in those difficult parts of our life. I want you to know I'm very open with sharing about my life. So as I share some things with you, I don't want you to feel like you have to help me or fix me or comfort me. Um, What I am sharing tonight is something that I'm comfortable sharing with all of you in the hope that Even though my story is very MK-based, missionaries kid-based, I think there are universal aspects of the human experience that will connect in some way with you as well. So that is my prayer as I begin. I'm going to give you a very basic tour of those four stages. And the best way to do that, I think, is to use something I call the rubber ducky technique. I work with missionary families and MKs around the world. It is one of my great joys in life. And this is one of the techniques that I give parents because if you're anything like me, you grew up in a Christian environment where talking about the hard stuff was not okay. 
we're talking about the hard stuff was almost seen as kind of sin-ish, sin-adjacent to talk about the hard stuff. So I tell these parents to get two duckies and to have their kids decorate one in happy colors and flowers and rainbows and to decorate the other one in less happy colors and not flowers and not rainbows. And then once a week or every day, whatever the family needs, they pass the duckies around the table and each person, mom and dad included, hold the yay duck and the yuck duck. And they talk about what the yay of today was and what the yuck of today was because it takes a paradox to define a paradox in our life. You're so very welcome. I worked really hard on that. <laughs> so as I'm talking, if there's something that jumps out at you from your experiences at a similar age, kind of make note of it or make note of it in your mind or on paper, and then I'll give you time to kind of process and ponder a little bit more. So without wanting to be, um, to, to show off, I was born and raised in France, that's just the reality. And because my parents taught at European Bible Institute just north of Paris, I got to grow up in this. <laughs> Again, not trying to show off or anything, but it is my reality. This is an 18th century castle. It's where the institute was held. It looked like um, it looked like an 18th century castle on the inside, like it was completely dilapidated. But I was a very um, impressionable, creative, romantic little girl, and for me to get to grow up in this was one of the huge yays of my growing up years. I loved that. Here's a little picture of little me. <laughs> Time has not been kind, ladies. Time has not been kind. And can I hear it from the menopause section at the back of the room? <laughs> Cheryl standing herself. Um, I got to grow up in a community of missionaries, so everybody was aunt and uncle. That was part of the yays as well. I got to travel a lot. Just north of Paris is pretty close to a lot of places. I can remember growing up, uh, waking up one morning and my dad saying, who's in the mood for Baskin Robbins? And the hands went up and he said, well, the nearest one is in Belgium, so let's try to Belgium to get some Baskin Robbins. So three and a half hours to get ice cream and then three and a half hours back. Is it any wonder that I have a little bit of disordered eating today? because the lengths we would go to. I got to grow up speaking two languages. I didn't have to learn them. I just kind of was steeped in both languages going up. Huge part of what I'm grateful for. And living in the Bible Institute um, was really stimulating to my brain. It was a lot of young adults that I got to hang out with that somehow allowed me to hang out with them, even as a child, and I loved all of that. So let's get to the yucks, shall we? There was a darkness and a fatalism about the French culture. Some of you might come from cultures where there's just a pessimism, a pessimistic outlook on life. Um, if you've watched any French movies, you know what I'm talking about. The barn burns down, the dog runs away, a tumbleweed goes by. Um, there are no tumbleweeds in France, but it's the image. Um, so really pessimistic. And some of these beautiful young adult students invited me to be part of the Poets' Corner, where we'd get together and sit around and read poetry to each other. And they were writing poems about God and nature and love. And it gets around to Shelley's turn. I was Shelley. I was also Lely in those days. And um, I pulled out this poem that I had written in French that I absolutely loved. And it was about a baby seal being bludgeoned to death. That was that pessimism has steeped into my spirit in a big way. I also started French schools in those days. Um, reminds me a little bit of this. <laughs> <laughs> I 
the French, <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> the French school system was brutal, and some of you might have experienced adults in authority who treated you in brutal ways. They believed that fear and humiliation were the best ways to make better students in their classrooms. So I literally had teachers who would pull my ear until it bled, who would tell me, you're stupid, you're never going to amount to anything. We had a dunce cap. We had a hat with donkey ears sticking out of it that they would stick on my head, stand me at the front of the room by the blackboard, that's how old I am, and instruct my friends to mock me because that would make me a better student, right? Some of you might have experienced that kind of toxic leadership in your life, if I dare call it leadership. My father was um, the kind of man that if you broke down at 4 o'clock in the morning, you called him, he would be there as quickly as he could be there. He was the life of the party. Big Canadian man living in France with a big voice and a big personality. He was also a very broken man behind closed doors. So I grew up in a household where I can remember waking up in the morning, stepping out of my bedroom and thinking, trying to sense the energy in the house that day and figuring out, okay, how am I going to keep him happy? And it was all on me at age seven or eight to kind of manage the family dynamics. Not an easy way to live. When we were visiting churches in the States, we were the perfect family. Um, so that sense of hypocrisy associated with faith uh, was something that I experienced as well. And my mom loved being a missionary, loved living in France, knew that if this came out publicly, life as she knew it would end. So she didn't do a whole lot except pray. So our family looked a little bit like this. It was also at this age that unfortunately, um, I was exposed to two forms of abuse when I was about five or six years old, when I got separated from my parents in a grocery store, and then when I was at 11 or 12 the son of some family friends. So this was huge stuff, as you can imagine, for a little sensitive, romantic girl to be dealing with. And the castle didn't really outweigh um, what it was that I was going through. I didn't speak about the abuse because nobody spoke about the abuse because we didn't have yuck ducks in those days. Um, and then I started to realize that something else in my life was the fact that I didn't belong anywhere. I was at home in France, I was at home in Canada, I was at home in the States, but maybe like some of you, there was no place where I 100% felt belonging. And this book illustrated that for me. It's the story, if you don't know it, that little bird falls out of a tree and he's trying to find his people and he goes to the cow and the tractor and the dog and says, are you my mother? Are you one of me? Is there a sameness that I can find with you? And that lack of belonging was something that I dealt with as well in my early years. I also began at that age to internalize something that I call the tyranny of shoulds. Growing up in the Christian world, child of missionaries, father who's a pastor, and the shoulds were incessant, incessant and shrieking. Because you're an MK, because you're the daughter of Ken and Sally Phoenix, because they're missionaries, you should fill in blank, be strong, always be happy, um, be resilient, be a spiritual superstar at age 12 because your parents are missionaries. The shoulds in the Christian environment are not specific to MKs, and I know that many of you have experienced them too. So, the yay duck was real. You know what I loved. And the yuck duck was real as well. But nobody knew about the yuck duck because I didn't speak about it, because nobody asked about it, because none of the adults spoke about it in those days. 
So I started to hear the voice of pain in my head. And this is what the voice of pain was telling me in those days. You are weird. You are worthless. You are revolting. You are a failure. No one will ever love you, not ever really love you, even those who are supposed to. This world is cruel, and the future is bleak. So for the next couple of minutes, and Anna's going to play a little bit for us, I would love for you to ponder this. Think back to your early years, so childhood all the way up to your teen years, before your teen years. What were some of the yucks in your life? And most importantly, what was the voice of pain telling you? What was the messaging you were receiving from the pain at that point in your life? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. If you need to get up and move a little bit, it's not going to be that long. But, um, and these are things that you are not going to have to share with anybody. So um, be as honest as you want to be with yourself. And I want to tell you as well that if this is uncomfortable for you, you can just spend these couple of minutes every time praying. You don't have to contemplate what I'm asking you to contemplate. So the teen years came around. Um, and we know that nothing emotional ever happens in your teen years because your hormones are completely under control. Um, so that was the case for me. Um, the, yuck, the yays of my teen years were actually related to a huge yuck, and that is that my parents went to England to get their marriage fixed because the mission told them to. Um, but what do we do with Michelle? We send Michelle to boarding school. So that was the yuck. That was the huge yuck then. However, while at boarding school, I found friends who were just like me. This was a school for missionaries' kids, other people who have lived cross-culturally, grown up in that pressure cooker world of ministry. Um, and for the first time in my life, I felt a sense of sameness with these other people. Even though their cultures were different than mine, that multicultural ministry should infused life was something that we all had in common. I had teachers who actually cared for me. What a difference. I actually waited for them to turn on me for an entire year. I kept thinking, this is not sustainable. At some point, you're going to become mean again. Um, even the phys ed teachers and the coaches were kind to me. And let's be honest, this is the kind of athlete I was. <laughs> I, <laughs> gets me every time. Um, I also got to be involved in music and theater, all of which I loved and kind of set the course for um, the rest of my life. So that was great. The yucks. We had to get around to those. Um, I think that kind of shows some of the yucks that were going on in my life. Um, some teenage angst is absolutely normal. There's kind of no way around that for most of us. But for me, it was compounded by that sense of rootlessness. Um, I felt like I wasn't anchored anywhere. And by those shoulds. I kept trying to live up to these unattainable standards that were being imposed on me but by I don't know who. I just knew that these shoulds were in my life and that I had to somehow live up to them. And I need to say that um, there's a difference between instructions, like what we get in the Bible, like what parents give their children, and shoulds. Instructions understand that it's we're going to get there someday, that it's a process, that there are going to be ups and downs and failures along the way, and the end goal is what we're reaching for. The shoulds that so many of us in Christian environments have experienced tell us that if you fail once, you're done. You are done. You bring shame on yourself, on your family, on their ministry, and on God himself. That is the power of the shoulds. Because of my inability to live up to these, God felt to me like this. In those same years, probably like some of you, I met a boy. 
Um, he was in 12th grade, I was, in, I was a sophomore, so two years apart, his name was David. He was a dark and brooding missionary's kid from Beirut, Lebanon. He played the guitar, he wrote poetry. I mean, what more do you want, right, in a guy? Um, and I was sure, to my core, that he truly loved me because although he was dating another girl, he was also trying to make time for me. And in secret, he would write me poetry and songs, um, and we'd meet behind the gym and talk. And uh, I felt that was true love, because true love would make you cheat on your girlfriend. Um, the teenage mind is a fascinating thing, <laughs> and not always a really healthy thing, I discovered. So I gave everything to David. I thought that he truly loved me, that we would get engaged, and that we would get married, and have beautiful children with a Lebanese flair to them. Um, and it was only later that I discovered, after he left in a very cruel fashion, that he had been using my naivete, um, that I had given myself to somebody who was not worthy of it, and that I had been used by somebody who claimed to love me. So I went into deep despair after he graduated to the degree that I tried to end my life twice when I was 17. Thank goodness I failed. But I had parents who were not aware because they were doing God's work. They were not aware of what was going on under their roof. They did not see the little 17-year-old walk back from the pond dripping wet and walk up the stairs leaving wet footprints behind. And they didn't ask any questions. So, um, so there was not much help there from them. High school ended, those chosen family members of mine, those friends, in those days we were splitting, going across the world from each other. There was no Facebook, there were no easy communication methods. So it was the end, it felt like a death. And that was truly one of the hardest periods of my life was saying goodbye to all of them. But the shoulds told me, you should be fine with this. This is the way the mission field works. You knew it was coming, and you are a superstar in the faith, so you will be fine with losing this part of your life. So what were the voices of pain saying to me? They were saying, you will never belong. You will never measure up. People who claim to love you are lying. Sadness is sin. You aren't important enough to be cared for, and people you love will always leave. My question for you for the next couple of minutes is this. What were the yucks in your life during your teenage years? And what was the voice of pain telling you? A couple more minutes on this. The college years came next. Can you tell how thrilled I am to be a college student on Wheaton campus? That, that was day one. It didn't get any better. Um, I ended up at Wheaton because literally in my little school in Germany there were two college catalogs in the library and this one had the prettier picture on the front cover. That is literally how I picked my college. I knew nobody in Wheaton. I had no family, no friends there. Um, there were yays, however, I think. Let me see if I can remember them. Yes, there were a couple. Um, I got to study communications, which I loved. I had this wonderful professor called um, Mr. Hollitz, Dr. Hollitz, who kind of took me under his wing and was helpful. I got to be involved in high caliber music, which I loved. And I met a woman called Barb Holderbaum. And I'm gonna digress just a little bit because I work with MKs, and this is a woman who did for me what I wish more people would do for the MKs who across your paths. So she didn't know me from Adam. I made my way through college by cleaning houses, and she was one of the houses I quote unquote cleaned. She would pick me up on um, Wednesday mornings and drive me to her house, and she would feed me lunch and dinner, 
and we would listen to Paul Harvey on the radio and watch Oprah and her soap operas. Um, when the first winter hit and I had zero clothes for the hideous Illinois winters, she took me out and bought me a coat. Um, she would take me to the Repeat Boutique, which is a boutique where you can get free clothes if you're a missionary's kid. Um, she just took me under her wing and taught me what I needed to know. And you can be Barb Holderbaums in the life of the MKs who cross your path. So that's my little plug um, for the MKs you know. And what I didn't realize then is that she was God's voice in that period of my life, but the other voices were louder. And I'm seeing that now in retrospect. So my parents left, um, they dropped me off, they spent a couple days there, went back to France, and I felt so abandoned in this place where I did not want to be, where I understood nothing, where I knew nobody. There was such resentment in my heart about being there. And some of you might relate to this, making friends the North American way was so confusing to me. I did not understand how Americans enter into friendships. Why do we talk about stupid things for four months before we actually go to places that are important? Um, so I made no friends because nobody had told me what I preach at MKs today, which is talk shallow for a while. It is getting you to where you want to go. Uh, it's just going to take a little longer than you're used to. As you can tell from everything I'm revealing to you tonight, I'm very open. It's the MK way. We talk about these things really fast. So that was hard, and then I just felt so inept at so many simple things because this was not my home. I had never lived here. So driving a car, I didn't drive until I was 21. I didn't know how to get a bank account open. I didn't know how to use ATMs. Um, didn't know how to go to the doctor. You keep your clothes on at the doctors here? Who knew that was a total <laughs> revelation to me? You go, in, you go in for a sore throat in Germany and you end up with your top off. That's just the way it works. So I like the plastic and paper robes. Those were great. Um, I felt isolated. I felt completely misunderstood. And because I didn't know how to make friends the American way, um, there was no hope. I didn't see anything changing in the near future. So really the college years were the culmination of all the yucks of a lifetime and God was so distant. I tried so hard to hear from him, to reach him, and there didn't seem to be anything I could do to get to connect with him. So the voices of pain, once again, were very loud and audible at this point. And they were saying to me, no one will ever understand you. You are completely alone trying to cope with life. You will never feel at home anywhere. You're embarrassingly helpless. Even God is done with you. So my question for you is, your college or young adult years, if you didn't go to college, what were the yucks in your life and what was the voice of pain telling you? A couple of minutes for that. My adult years continued, thanks be to God. <laughs> um, and the huge yay was that after working for a year as a screenwriter, writing discussion starter videos for a little company um, in the style of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So imagine youth, 
yeah, conversation starter videos in that style. It was great fun. They uh, went bankrupt, and so um, I went back to Germany. <laughs> I went back to the school that I had attended as a teenager. Um, this time I went back to work in the communications department, but when I landed and went into the principal's office, he said, you know what, we really need a teacher this year. Now, I was not qualified to teach. I had never taught in my life before, but I was mission field qualified, which means I had a pulse. So, um, so I ended up teaching there. Um, and I found such compassion for myself as I cared for these other younger MKs than me. And I started to understand myself as they would bring their kind of third person problems to me and I could see so much more clearly as I was caring for them. The huge yays of this part of my life were that I got to be involved in music and drama and creative writing and English, French and public speaking and all that fun stuff. I loved it. The yucks were still there. I realized that I was still carrying around a lot of what had accumulated over all the years that I've told you about. We don't just experience grief, we accumulate it and we relive it. So that every time there's a little opening where a little bit of grief come out, can come out, a lot of grief comes gushing out as the accumulation of all those years. Um, so there was a lot of wonderful in my life. I loved my job. I loved my students. I never set foot in the communications department, and that was just fine by me. And there was all of this other stuff going on in my life that was so difficult to even identify. This was also during these 20 years at BFA, the time that I realized that, you know what, you were voted most likely to be first married and first to be a mom, and that was not going to happen in my life. I've never married, I'm not a mom, I'm 53, so that's not gonna happen. Um, and that was part of what was going around in my head, kind of on repeat, even though I was investing in a work and in people that I loved. So in my mind, things got dark again, but even though my work was wonderful, my life felt toxic in ways I couldn't identify entirely. The yucks, that accumulation of yucks had been untreated because they were unspoken because of the shoulds that had muted me for all those years. So the voices of pain were still very loud and getting louder. And at this stage in my life, they were saying, there is no help for me. I will never outlive this pain. Life is brutal. God doesn't care. I'm weak, I'm a failure, and I just can't. So last time, a couple of minutes to think of your adult years. What were the yucks in your life? And what was or is the voice of pain telling you? So the good news is that was not the end of my story. What I discovered is that that accumulation of shoulds, of words that I was hearing from the voices of pain was starting to look something like this. And it was so overwhelming that I didn't know what to do with it. And if I were to put a picture to it, it would be this. I felt like that was the accumulation of all of the stones in my life, the stones of grief and loss and trauma and rejection, anger, doubt, and it was crippling me. I could not move out of under this pile of stones. And I realized that the stones I carried had begun to, to determine a few things in my life. How I felt about myself, worthless, disgusting, useless, expendable. How I felt about God, distant, demanding, disappointed. And how I felt about the world around me, unsafe, harmful, and perpetually so. 
So I knew that I needed to do something about it. And as you think back to what you've accumulated in your mind of, of the voices, the statements that you've written down or that you've thought through tonight, consider whether you're like this statue and you have these hundreds of little stones that you're carrying around, or maybe you've got one big boulder that's taking up most of the space in your pain. Or maybe it's just this kind of blurry thing that's out there and feels threatening and you don't quite know what it is. I had tried by this point all kinds of help. Um, counseling, medication, meditation, community, all of those are great and worthwhile and worth investing in, but I still could not get to Jesus or to God. He was this walled off shape in the distance that didn't feel safe or caring. So I got help, not because I wanted to. I flew back from uh, Germany to the States, was staying with a friend. She saw the state I was in and said, Michelle, you've got to get in to see somebody. Um, so she um, got me an appointment with her therapist in uh, St. Charles, Illinois. And that man, um, and I had seen therapists before. This was not my first rodeo. Um, but this man said four words that changed my life. He said, of course you're broken. Of course you're broken. I was 23. I was at the end of my rope. When I would drive home from Germany, I lived in France and worked in Germany suffering for the Lord. Um, I would drive home along this beautiful French road with a row of trees on each side, evenly spaced. You've seen them in the movies, right? Um, and coming off a day where I loved everything I was doing, and I would have this thing in the back of my mind that would say, if you just turn the wheel a little bit and hit that tree right there, right on, something will end. I didn't know what it was, but I needed something to end. So I didn't know this therapist. He wasn't from any kind of ministry community. He was completely unrelated to any of my worlds. Um, he was safe from shoulds from judgment, from the God bludgeons that I had been hit with a few times, and I just vomited my life story out to this man. Bless his heart. Um, and I held nothing back, and I probably used words that would have had my parents turning green, but I just needed to get it, all those stones. I needed to get all those stones out. And when I was finished, kind of out of breath from having revealed so much, um, he was sitting forward and he was looking at me, and that's when he said, of course you're broken. There was no shaming, there was no minimizing, there was no spiritualizing of my pain. And he did mean broken in the sense of beyond repair, like you're done, so sorry. Um, it was in the sense of I had been so wounded by life's injustice and pain and my brokenness was real and it was okay. It was okay. Those words changed my life, they gave me permission to feel pain, they gave me permission to weep and groan and question and thrash. Um, they gave me permission to be human, which the Christian world in many ways had not given me before. Being broken, I want you to hear me say this, being broken is not weakness. Being broken is not sin. And expressing our brokenness is not shameful. That is what I learned from that man that day. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the person who developed the five stages of grief. She also said this, which is really the mantra of everything I do in my life in ministry, grief must be witnessed in order to be healed. But we're afraid of feeling it, and the shoulds tell us we should be strong enough not to express it, and so we sit with our grief in silence and privacy, and we de deprive it of the chance to be healed.
So I had to contradict the guilt and the shoulds with five permissions. I'm going to walk you through them really fast um, in order to isolate the voice of pain and elevate the voice of love. So let me tell you what they are. I need to start with this one, and that is permission not to hear him. Permission not to hear him. The voice of lies tells us that if we can't hear him, we're a spiritual failure. And there are seasons when, honestly, we just won't, when the effort of survival is going to drown out any voice, including God's. And it is okay for us not to hear him. It is okay for you, if you're in that season now, not to be able to hear him. I discovered that sometimes we use those stones that we carry with us to actually build protective walls around ourselves. And that is what I did so well. I built this very tight and narrow tower around myself to protect myself, to keep myself upright, um, to keep any further stones from hitting me. And I discovered only many years later that that wall that I had built was keeping me from reaching for community and was keeping me from sensing and hearing and seeing God's work in my life because he doesn't impose himself on people. So if you are in that place where you are not hearing him, I would say this, when we can't hear God, we can try to remember who he is, even if it doesn't feel current. Through scriptures, we can do that for sure. Through what we know, what we have known him to be, going back in our memory to those seasons where we did sense and hear um, God's place, God's presence in our life. Through the words of those who can still hear him, that's what some of the cohorts we're talking about are going to do. When we can't hear him, maybe other people can hear him for us. And through those whose words and hearts and lives reflect him like Barb Holderbaum and like a lot of people sitting in this room tonight. I gave myself the second permission to feel the pain, to silence the voices that told me I shouldn't. Shut up is a really good answer to them and to elevate the voices that tell me I can. Like David in the Psalms, I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. My vision is blurred with grief. Like Jeremiah in Lamentations, I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. Like Job, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest but only turmoil. And like Gideon and Judges, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? The Lord has abandoned us. There it is. Rich Villotas is a pastor in New York, and he's made this beautiful statement. Lamenting is the spiritually mature response to sadness and sorrow. Our spiritual aliveness is not found in our ability to suppress our sadness, our spiritual aliveness is found in our ability to bring it to God. No truer words have been said. It is not a sin to express the pain we're feeling. It is not sin to moan and sob and wish out loud that it was different. It is not sin to identify those circumstances and people that harmed us. It is not sin to lay blame at the feet of the cruel and the heartless. It is righteous to recognize and call out wrong. God is not disappointed with me when I do because he is the God of truth. I gave myself permission to reject the lies. And by the lies, I mean those easy Christian cliches and half-truths that we heap on people who are in the middle of suffering. 
And I would love to open the floor up to you and see if you have any examples of that. Some of them are actually biblically based, but when we articulate them to people who can barely stand up or get out of bed in the morning, they heap more pain on top of them. And many of them require that we have a profound sense of God and faith to really understand all the nuances of these easy statements we make to people suffering. Yes. Yes. God will never give you more than you can handle. That, that's not even what the scripture says. Well, the Bible is full of people who can't handle what <laughs> they're going through. Yes. Yes. What are some of the other ones? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's so much I could say, but I'm going to control myself because we've got to end this before midnight. Any others? There's so many. With him, yeah. But that's not okay to have negative feelings yeah. towards God. Yeah. But he, he, won't, he won't abide that. Yeah. Yeah. Really? You don't have any more of those cliches? I mean, they were my steady diet growing up. This is your cross that you Yes. I, um, yeah, I'll give you an example a little bit later. But yes, yeah, so many things that we say um, that really don't help. And I work with children, and I know children who have heard these things that we tell them about nothing bad happens to you, but that sifts through God's hands. And it is so difficult for children with a fragile and uh, naive faith to make sense of those statements that people with PhDs are still writing, writing books about. So I keep going back to Matthew 12, where he says, and I'll read you the rest of this verse later, but he says, a bruised reed he will not break. And we tend to give the message that God's going to keep inflicting more pain on people who are already suffering, but a bruised reed he will not break. Permission number four, permission to consider the sources of suffering. We need to stop thinking that every bad thing is willed by God and inflicted by God. I think of the story of Elijah. Elijah went out into the cave and the mountains, and the Bible describes a storm of cataclysmic proportions where the wind was lifting the rocks up and they were slamming together in midair and falling back down broken. We're talking major storm. And so many times the Christian world will say that was God. God was the storm. He was trying to teach Elijah something through that violence that was going around, uh, on around him. And what the Bible actually does say is these few words, God was not in the storm. God was not in the storm. So we need to be really careful about blaming every storm on God's will for us to suffer. I will tell you a few things that, um, a few sources that pain comes from. Sometimes it's self-inflicted, flawed human beings making stupid decisions like Adam and Eve and David and Judas. Sometimes we're collateral damage of the flawed human beings making stupid decisions. Um, that has happened to me now that you know my story over and over again. Direct attacks from the forces of evil cause pain. Cataclysms, we live on a broken planet where tectonic plates shift and mountains and um, waters surge and earthquakes happen and tsunamis happen and decay. None of us are immune from illness and old age and eventually death. These are all sources of pain as well. And it's important in our theology that we articulate to young minds and spirits 
um, that we address all of that. The last permission I gave myself was permission to narrow my spiritual focus to Jesus, not God, at least for a while. Because of the mis misrepresentations that I had been given my whole life about God, he still looked like this to me. God the dictator, demanding, distant, disappointed. And it is so hard to seek or hear God when we have been told and believe that he is our abuser. I know that's a strong term, but we are communicating that in so many ways in the church. So um, I had to change the slideshow in my mind from this to something more like this. I realize that if I want to know who God is, I have to look at his son. Jesus is the embodiment of the spirit and heart of God for us. And if I can't imagine Jesus doing it, then I need to second guess whatever I'm interpreting that tells me that Jesus will willingly inflict pain on me to make himself look better. Jesus sweat blood with anguish. He stepped away when he was overwhelmed. Maybe he was an introvert. I love that. And he felt no guilt when he stepped away. Thank you, Jesus. Um, he loved and reached out to the wounded, to the oppressed, to the hurting. He came to build a relationship with us, not a religion around himself. And so often we get that wrong. So I needed to remind myself of how his life was kindness and care. He laid hands on the lepers. He healed the ill and the blind. He liberated those bound by social injustice and by prejudice. He valued children and women. He respected the outcast. He listened, encouraged, fed, and comforted. This is a God I can get close to. I found speaking to that person easier than trying to earn the kindness of an angry, disappointed God. I knew Jesus would understand me and not dismiss me, and I knew that he would say, of course you're broken, and I can help you. So when the suffering of life manifested again, as it will, I could recognize the voice of someone I love over the chaotic voice of pain. I knew Jesus. I trusted the person with whom I was in relationship. I wasn't trying to figure out a theological puzzle or hear the voice of someone who was just a collection of shoulds. I knew Jesus when life got hard again. And because I knew him, because I was certain of his character and his love, I could hear and recognize his voice when life got hard. So I trusted his love and strength when cancer struck in 2008. I trusted his nearness when my closest friend of 20 years passed away in 2011. I trusted his compassion and comfort when other health issues came up during the following years that caused all kinds of difficult things. I trusted his goodness and heartbrokenness when cancer struck again five years ago, causing life-altering and self-esteem-challenging interventions and recoveries. And because I knew him, I could dismiss the cliches that people threw at me. And I quote, God chose you for this cancer so you can glorify him. I know Jesus, Jesus did not say that. Most recently, I trusted his tenderness and righteous anger and zeal for justice when faith leaders failed to comfort the suffering, added to their pain, shunned those they had harmed, dismissed truth, 
embraced lies and emerged unscathed. I can hear Jesus now because I know Jesus now and my self-defensive walls are down. He is not a religion. He is my friend, my savior, my intimately loving God. I can go back to calling him God again. Those pictures don't affect me anymore. He is a familiar, safe, and just voice. I had colleagues who were working in Aleppo, Syria in 2016 when all the terrible bombing was going on there. And one night they hit a hospital and um, there was chaos outside the hospital. There were life-saving measures happening all over the place. Sirens were wailing. Parts of the building were still collapsing. There were military and medical vehicles coming and going as people were pulled from the rub rub rubble. And a toddler that had been in the hospital for something else previously was also hit by um, the falling building, and he was in the arms of a colleague of mine. He was safe in her arms, and she had to stay there because she needed to have him seen by some of the medical personnel that were still swarming the scene. Um, but she tried to soothe him, but he was screaming, as you can imagine, in fear and terror, just beside himself um, with terror. And the rescuers located a woman under the debris. She had been um, saved by a crossbar that prevented her from, from being crushed when the building came down. They managed to get her out of the fallen building. They gave her some oxygen. And as she came back to consciousness, she moaned. And the baby, 20 yards away, stopped crying, turned his head, and looked for where that moan had come from. That baby knew his mother was the embodiment of love and nurture. He knew she was a safe place even though she was in that storm with him. He didn't doubt her in that moment. He looked for her. Every cell of his body focused on finding her because he knew who she was and he trusted her. So how do we hear Jesus above the chaos of our pain and abandonment and torment and loss? Of course we reach for the help we can get, for the processing help, reading the Bible, therapy, community, all of that so important. And also, crucially, we learn about who he was and is by every means available to us. We seek relationship with him so we can recognize his voice in the rubble. We participate in spiritual practices that can enhance our faith and understanding. That's what we're about this weekend. Because if we know Jesus, if we know him as a comforter, not an inflictor of our suffering, if we're certain in our souls that he grieves when we grieve, that he is angry at those who harm us, that he is the God of justice who will not rest until justice is served, then we might be able to hear him better. Then we might be able to recognize his voice of love and mercy when everything hurts then we might be able to dismiss the lies and the easy cliches that insult him and don't line up with the loving, involved, kind, merciful, and redemptive Savior we know. Then we might be able to recognize his voice whispering new truth to us. You are my beloved. I am impossibly close. I am healing and wholeness. I will make all things right. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells me so. My unfailing love for you will not be shaken. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He won't break off a bent reed or put out a dying flame 
but he will make sure that justice is done. In a couple minutes, I'm going to give you um, maybe five minutes this time and allow you to leave the room to think of what the voice of Jesus, the voice of truth, is telling you this evening, or to go off and pray and spend time with Jesus if that's what you need to do. Um, but there's one song that has been so meaningful to me in this last year, in this season of frustration and anger and loss and transition, and that song is The Kingdom is Yours, which a lot of you know. And there are a few lines that stick out to me that I'm just going to remind you of. Blessed are the ones who do not bury all the broken pieces of their heart because they are beautiful to Jesus. Blessed are the tears of all the weary pouring like a sky of falling stars, and then the chorus, the kingdom is yours, the kingdom is yours, hang on a little more, this is not the end, hope is in the Lord, keep your eyes on him. I'm wearing a pendant that has a, a semicolon on it to remind me that this is not the end. So if you are suffering today, I want you to hear Jesus say this, of course you're broken. Of course you're broken. And feel no shame. It is neither sin nor weakness. And then I want you to hear him whispering to you in the heart of whatever storms you're going through, and maybe storms still to come, hang on a little more. This is not the end.